Welcome back to Mining Pod. Today we're excited to launch the first Mining Pod takeover. We're two experts in the Bitcoin mining landscape. Takeover as hosts, interviewing others within their own domain. We have a Taylor Monick from CleanSpark and Mark Fraza of Vinesh taking over the podcast for five episodes with guests from Galaxy Digital, BitFarms, GDA, and Core Scientific, and then finishing off with an episode between themselves, just talking about what they learned during the mini series, some highlights of what they're looking forward towards in the future. This is a really great show format. I learned a ton from just listening to these experts. It's kind of like closed door conversations that you'd get if you're working in the industry. Uh, this is some of the top experts in the field. So thank you again to Taylor and Mark for spending the time going through these episodes and creating it. And thank you also to our guests for joining us. Last thank you to Foreman Mining for being the exclusive sponsor for this mini series. Uh, we'll have the normal episodes coming out on Wednesdays and Saturdays per normal. Uh, but we'll have these shows with Foreman Mining coming out on Mondays going through the end of the year. Okay, first, a quick word from our sponsor, Foreman Mining, and then we will jump right into the show. Hey, listeners, if you're in the mining game, you'll want to hear about Foreman. It's not just a management tool. It's a game changer for how you run your operation. Their dashboard isn't just about management. It's about smart automation for price avoidance and demand response with a strong energy strategy. This means lower costs and higher efficiency, giving you an edge in competitive market. They grow in scale with you, providing an intuitive inventory management system that makes tracking your assets a breeze. Foreman's automation works around the clock and turns your business as humming even while you sleep. It's about maximizing profitability with peace of mind. And Foreman doesn't just help you save money, it pays for itself. Head over to foreman.mn to see what they can do for you. Whether it's optimizing energy, expanding capabilities, or streamlining operations, Foreman can be the solution you've been searching for. With Foreman, you're not just managing a mining operation, you're setting a new standard in the mining industry. Uh, welcome to the Mining Podcast Takeover. So we're going to be having a five or six episode series where Mark and I focus on immersion and technology and operations inside of the Bitcoin mining space. So my name is Taylor Monick. Senior Vice President of Mining over at CleanSpark, and I'll hand it over to Mark to do an intro on himself. Hi, I'm Mark Fraza. I'm the head of BD for the Vanish, or A6TO, whatever you want to call us, in the firmware space. And we have our lovely guest here today, Ben. Hey, everyone. Yeah, welcome. Uh, I'm Ben Gagnon, Chief Mining Officer of BitFarms, uh, also known as Hash Override. Hash Override to the show. We're going to go ahead and jump right into it. So your title is Chief Mining Officer. Walk our guests through what your day-to-day -day or maybe week-to-week -week is being the chief mining officer over at BitFarms. Yeah, you know, the daily responsibilities of a chief mining officer change on a daily basis. You know, from a high-level view, I'm in charge of mining operations and strategy. So uh, spend a lot of my day doing economic modeling, research, planning. Um, but you know, we also tie into just about every aspect of the company. So I engage with with finance and capital raises. I work with investor relations to make sure uh, our metrics are reported properly and, and the strengths and our accomplishments are communicated. Um, also work with the techs and the op guys, you know, to make sure that everything's working on the ground, understand their problems and uh, different solutions that we can implement to make things better. Uh, so I spent a lot of my time on on optimizing our sites and, and our assets. No, that's awesome. Thank you for the recap. And, and one of the reasons I'm really excited to start the series off with Ben is, is Ben has uh, been there, done that, has all the experience in the in the mining safe space from start to finish, would consider him absolutely one of our, our leading experts when it comes to, to mining and running a mining operation. So we're really excited to have him. Um, you know, over at uh, BitFarms, you know, you guys are focused on a wide range of technologies. Are you guys starting to implement liquid immersion cooling or hydro cooling or any sort of just alternative cooling mediums like throughout your guys' sites? Talk to us about how you guys view that in the development of it. Yeah, um, it's a good question. You know, a lot of people have gotten into immersion in a pretty heavy way. Um, I have a background in, in two-phase immersion, as you know, Taylor. So uh, we did run a little bit of single-phase immersion uh, as pilot projects. So we had a small... R&D project in Quebec, and we also had a small R&D project in Washington with, with single phase immersion. Um, you know, my my experience and my take on immersion, generally speaking, is that uh, the system's already generally expensive and more expensive than air, and so people try and cut costs uh, in every which way that they can to make the system more competitive. And I think when when most people cut costs, it ends up compromising the performance of the system. And, you know, the way that you design a proper immersion cooled setup, whether it's single phase, two phase, 
uh, or, or hydro, you really want to overbuild on the cooling capacity so that you can take of these miners up and down. And I think everybody kind of, you know, ends up with a kind of a half thought out product because they, they don't build in enough overclocking and, and cooling capacity. And so then they end up getting a lot of underperformance and, and higher costs as a result. Um, I think that's been our experience with single phase immersion. So we are now starting to try out hydro-cooled miners. Um, I have a lot more uh, hope and um, you know confidence in the hydro mining technology than I do over over the immersion. Just just given our our experience with immersion so far, like this is a product that's relatively simple, relatively easy to understand from our tech's perspective, um, and again is is much more modular, right? In in terms of how it's how it's built and how it plugs into a system. So we'll have our first one megawatt worth of hydro miners deployed here in the next couple of months in Quebec. And then we're deploying 20 megawatts worth of hydro miners down in Paraguay, um, all micro VT M56S plus variants, uh, or is that the M53S plus variants? So, so hey, um, we were kind of talking about this prior and I, we had this conversation, I think years ago when we were on a call. Yeah, you seem to know quite a bit about immersion, single phase, two phase. Could you elaborate on that project that you were working on? I I can't even tell you how long ago it was. Yeah, I got into two phase immersion um, right after I left China. I mean, if 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 people know my my background, I started out mining in in mainland China back in 2015. Um, I did that for a couple of years before it got simply too difficult for a white guy running a Bitcoin mine in mainland China. <laughs> Um, and, and so I had to shut everything down. I, I, when I did that, um, I transitioned off into a, uh, a hardware manufacturing business that was trying to solve my greatest problem I had as an operator in mainland China, besides just being in mainland China, which was cooling. Uh, you know, I wasn't in a, in a very advantageous spot. I was in uh, Guangzhou, which is pretty Southern, it's pretty humid, it's pretty, it, it's pretty tropical heat. Um, and we always had issues with, with heat um, and, and overheating on the miners. And so I wanted to solve that. I looked out around on the internet for the best technologies out there and immersion quickly came to the forefront as a technology that, you know, boasted a lot of potential gains. Um, you know, I looked at this as, hey, what is the most perfect environment that we could have for our compute? What would that look like? And it was it was immersion. Um, I think was was kind of my my take on that. So there's two ways that you look at that. You're single phase and there's two phase. Like I think about single phase as you know kind of like the 80-20 rule. Like how do you get the vast majority of the benefits for a lower cost um, and kind of a simpler product, right? You can surely get more performance out of a two phase system than a single phase system. But the amount of extra cash you have to put into it, the amount of extra over-engineering and, and the quality that you have to build that system up to, it's just, it's not worth the extra cost for the extra gain. Um, and so single phase is probably going to win out between the two technologies. Um, but yeah, no, it's it if it's designed properly and it's a perfect environment for your compute, like you should get a lot more economic benefit out of it. I just don't think people design it robust enough. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with the point on cutting costs. I mean, I think we've seen that in a lot of the deployments, um, especially in Texas and some of the hotter areas where people try and get away with dry coolers rather than cooling towers being, you know, that reoccurring theme I see. What what led you away from your, your two-phase endeavor, your two-phase project? Were you trying to get back into mining, lost interest? Like what what was, it sounded like it ended at some point. What was the catalyst to, for that end? Yeah, well, I got um, I got out of my mining business at the end of 2017, which turned out to be a like a perfect timing to exit a, a hardware business. Um, and I transitioned off into this this mining business. You know, I was self-funded the entire time with the the profits that we made from our our mining business um, in the years prior. And you know, really, it was funding a startup with Bitcoin in a bear market over two years where you're trying to sell the most expensive product to people who have zero money. Um, you know, it was, it was a good strategy. It was terrible timing. And if we would have done the exact same thing two years later, it would have been a very different business. But trying to sell 
a two-phase immersion product to to a Bitcoin mining community in, in 2018 and 2019 was a losing game. You know, it would take three, four meetings to explain the product, the advantages, the technologies, the the payments. And every single time we had that meeting, Bitcoin's down another three grand. And, um, you know, by the time you you have the fourth meeting and they get it, Bitcoin's gone from 15K to 8K. And, uh, you know, nobody wants to do it anymore. The maps will change. So uh, we got really close several times. Um, but, you know, that Bitcoin price volatility bit us. Like we had one deal lined up. Uh, it was a, a Friday. We went in uh, to go close on Monday. Bitcoin price ripped over the weekend. It was up like 35%. You know, all of my costs on the hardware side went up. The guy thought I was screwing him, you know, because we had a deal on Friday and the price was different on Monday. You know, it's a tough market. If there's one thing the manufacturers are good at is hiking up the price of miners the moment there's a good price swing. But oh, um, absolutely. Ne- and, never and that was an opportunity to raise the price of miners. Oh, yeah. And then when it goes down, oh, we'll just throw you a coupon. Um, but uh, the, the one thing I kind of want to touch on, too, though, so you were doing two phase and that's not even common now. I mean, I'm trying to think, did anybody else really do two phase in mining at scale? Uh, right. I mean, no, um, uh, what was it? Uh, Allied Control out of Hong Kong, the group that that Bitfury bought, they have a 20 megawatt site in Tbilisi. That was the first major site at scale, um, and and I don't know of any other of any other one. Um, there was Taylor's site down there in Texas, and besides that one and the Tbilisi site, I don't know of any actual large scale two phase mining deployment. Yeah, I can, I can back that up. Yeah, I mean, besides yeah. Ben, um, the only other people that ever deployed was, was Bitfury slash Allied Controls, depending on what you want to call on timing. Uh, the site in Tbilisi, they did another one in Azure, another part of Azerbaijan that was actually even larger, 60 megawatts. Um, but yeah, those are really the only two or three at scale providers. Um, I know there's been some smaller projects, people like Rick Margerson, who's deployed a, a number of smaller tanks. But if we're going to talk multiple megawatts, yeah, I think those are about the only three operators who have done it. Off of curiosity, do you guys know if the Georgian site, the Bitfury site, is still running? Because, I mean, that hardware has got to be pretty old now. Um, as far as I know, yeah, it's still in operation. I don't think Bitfury owns it anymore. I, did, I, I faintly recall that it was sold, um, but I, I believe it's still running, just different ownership. And so, Ben, you, you mentioned you're, you're deploying your first megawatt of hydro with those micro BT machines. Is this something you guys are doing for performance, for sustainability, environmental concerns? Like what, what led you guys down the path of saying, hey, let's let's try hydro. You guys have been a very successful air cooled operation, always one of the top, you know, Bitcoin, Brexa, hash, top hash rate utilization companies. What made the push to go, hey, we should check out liquid cooling in, in some sort of fashion? Uh, I mean, it, it's a good question. I think several things went into that. One, you know, the manufacturers are pushing this technology pretty heavily. Um, we saw a site down in Washington that's running Bitmain Hydro. It's probably the largest Bitmain Hydro site in the country that I know of is in central Washington. The technology, you know, seemed to be working out fairly well. Um, there is a, you know, there is a drive always to improve efficiency so long as the cost effectiveness is there. And I think uh, especially in a lot of our sites we operate in, like Quebec, there's a huge demand for for heat. Um, there's also a lot of political headwinds against Bitcoin mining specifically. And I think part of the reason why MicroBT and Bitmain develop these products is they want to change their classification as a power load from Bitcoin mining to, to heat, right? And, and if you change your classification from Bitcoin mining to primarily heat generation, you know, then you should open up whole new pockets of, of available electricity. You start tapping into all these kind of decarbonization programs like, um, you know, Hydro Quebec is the largest, well, they're the, you know, provincial state-owned utility uh, for Quebec that gives us all of our electricity. Um, and they have decarbonization goals. You know, the real big sector in Hydro Quebec to decarbonize are, is heat and transport. Right. And so heat and transport are still the only ones that are done with that gas and, you know, obviously petroleum diesel. So um, any sort of electrification of heat is actually seen as a positive, whereas Bitcoin mining is generally seen as a negative. 
so we want to get our hands on this technology. If this is an efficient way for us to capture, recycle the, the heat, get some economic benefit out of it and some, some, some you know, actual utility out of it, uh, that's a positive for us in terms of reducing our costs and improving our profitability. Um, so get hands-on with it. I mean, part of the reason why we deployed in, uh, in Paraguay is not because we see the commercial viability of the technology, but also because we want to test this technology in multiple environments. We have the infrastructure coming um, in Paraguay. And what was the most cost-effective way to deploy that was utilizing some, some credits that we already had with uh, the manufacturer. So we got all of the uh, investment into the MicroBT M53S Plus for our Paraguay site with credits that we already had um, with MicroBT. So it was a very capital efficient deployment because we didn't have to deploy cash on hand. So w one of the things I want to ask, so when deploying an air-cooled farm, you know, design and, you know, how you situate and build the farm is obviously a concern. And then with immersion, you know, there's a whole lot of things you need to do right. Otherwise, you'll have a bad immersion. Are you finding this at all with hydros? Or are there any quirks with getting your hydros up and running? Um, like, I know in colder climates, turning on a hydro is not a simple process because it needs to be warm enough. Uh, granted, in Paraguay, I don't think you're going to have winter. But is there any quirks you guys are running into with these hydro units? Well, for sure. And, and you know, uh, the hydro deployment in Quebec versus hydro deployment in Paraguay are completely different deployments. And it's like, you know, it's the same minor, but at the end of the day, the technologies, the interconnects, like, you know, the, the different variables that we have to control for in the environment is 180 degrees different. Um, you know, like in Paraguay, even if the power went out, we're never going to have an issue where that fluid will freeze. In you know the rare situation that happens in Quebec, like we need to be prepared for that. The system needs to be able to handle an emergency freeze. Like if that if that happens, like these are engineering challenges that are, you know, completely different in the two different areas that we're deploying. Um, we're working through all that. You know, MicroBT is really good at providing support, and and you know they're fantastic engineers and, and hardware specialists. So we're working through all of that really closely with the MicroBT team, and. Uh, so far, I, I don't think we've had any issue that seems unsurmountable, um, but definitely there are things that we are learning right now um, that we did not know, you know, when we uh, started getting into this process a couple months ago. We still do expect to deploy everything on time, though. So, you know, nothing, nothing insurmountable, like I said. Taylor, are you guys, are you guys buying hydros or are, are you full immersion? Uh, so we, uh, we're actually like a mix, right? So we've built, we'll have built 200 megawatts this year, 50 over in Washington and 150 at our Sanders Hill location. Those are actually all air-cooled sites. Uh, we have a new passively cooled building design that we're really excited about, pretty much provides a PUE of, of one, which is about, you know, the mecca for data center design, being able to, to operate without fans. Um, but yeah, we are absolutely looking into immersion. We plan to deploy a lot more immersion into 24. And yeah, we'll certainly do some testing on the hydro. Um, but, you know, given my background and, and the things that I've worked on in my past, I'm really, you know, bullish on open bath immersion. I find the hydros to be um, definitely good from the performance aspect and the pricing is getting great because, as you said, the OEMs are, are working on that technology. Uh, but just the amount of, you know, water leak points built throughout the site, and then you're basically locked into that specific miner and that specific device for open bath immersion. I can put M56 next to S21 next to Canon 12 or 14, you know, whatever, and, and be able to run them all in the same tank and multiple generations and things like that. So there's pros and cons to like all the technology. We just feel really comfortable with immersion. So we're going to keep pushing, um, especially on the single phase stuff to your point, right? If it's designed well, 80-20 rule, it's pretty much covers everything you need now. And uh, I think we, it'll be a while till we get to those two-phase type densities. But, uh, you know, you're, you're deploying different technologies. You're, you're in several different countries, right? How has the regulatory landscape for cryptocurrency mining evolved in, in your time over at BitFarms? And is there something about South America that's just really inviting and in, in why you guys are going down there? Yeah. Um, you know, when I joined the company, we were just in, in Quebec. Uh, you know, we weren't even spread out across Canada. We're in one province of Quebec and, and basically towns that were no more than a 45 minute drive away from each other. Uh, I think, you know, what we've seen is that uh, the regulatory environment for Bitcoin miners is definitely unpredictable. 
and faces a lot of political headwinds. The more diversification that we can have, the better. So, you know, we, um, I was actually originally hired to help us broaden out our reach beyond Quebec and, and set up, uh, you know, another branch of bid farms out in Alberta or, or some other location, um, you know, that would give us a little bit more flexibility. And uh, those, those plans didn't work out, but, you know, we've expanded now into Washington. Um, we have Paraguay and we have Argentina and we look at it like a portfolio. Um, we've got a portfolio of sites. We have a portfolio of power providers of power prices of, of hardware we're deploying at these sites. And we're just trying to manage risk and, and optimize assets across, you know, all these different, these areas, the regulatory has changed a lot. Like, um, you know, you're not in, in Canada, Taylor, but you know, we have a situation in Canada where we had the trucker protest last year and the, it was, it was like the exact timeline is, is not entirely clear, but it was something like February 4th trucker protest, February 5th. Um, Hey, we're going to freeze bank accounts, February 6th. Hey, we're using Bitcoin. February 7th, they dust off whatever legislation they had against Bitcoin, you know, sitting on the, the sides since 2018 and threw it, threw it at us, you know? Um, so for the last year and a half, um, we've been engaging with, with Ottawa in a tax lobby coalition. We pulled together basically every major Bitcoin miner in Canada. Um, all the publics are with us. Most of the smaller, you know, privates or medium scale privates, like, we have it. The one thing they've really done is unify the entire industry um, against the federal government's tax policies. So, um, you know, good, good for them. Um, we're not going away and we're going to continue fighting this, but you know, this is a, this is a really illogical, you know, position for us to, to be in. And you know, they, they, they change the rules and then it's up to you to fight them and prove that the rules are unjust, you know, and until you succeed in that, it's, it's the effective law. So I think the best way for us forward is, is diversification as much as possible. Like we'd like to rebalance our portfolio, you know, like United States, not enough representation, Quebec, maybe too much representation. Um, I would love to get into Africa or Northern Europe um, and have a, a, you know, a greater varieties of jurisdictional, you know, regimes. Cause it's, you, you don't know what's going to happen. <laughs> Um, and I think Canada is a pretty dangerous place, to be honest with you, um, on a regulatory side. And what do you find is the biggest biggest risk, like on the regulatory side? Like, what do you think could have the biggest impact on on mining, whether it's in South America or Canada, that you've seen, you know, over the last year? I think it's a tax on energy prices. I think that's the easiest one for them to put through. You know, they can just tax the energy price to make it uneconomical. Um, and I think we'll continue to see pressure on that. You know, that's something that they can say, hey, here's this industry-specific tariff, you know, or industry-specific tax rate. And, you know, it doesn't impact anybody who's not in our space. Um, it's a really easy political win, I think, for, for a lot of communities. Um, and so I expect you're just going to see a lot more of, of that sort of behavior. You know, I gave a a talk in Prague at the POW summit uh, a couple of weeks ago on, on how not to mine. And it was 12 rules to guarantee failure. Um, and one of my rules is like, you should go someplace where you're actually wanted because the, the best places to mine are actually going to want you there, right? They're going to see the economic benefit of you coming in there, doing the investment, bringing the jobs, creating the tax revenue. Like they're going to want you there. Um, I think this, this, business is far too fast paced to go someplace and just like fight against people who don't understand our business, don't want you there. Like think Bitcoin is just for criminals. Like you don't have time to convince those people. The industry is too fast. So another question I had, um, this is a question that I, I actually haven't really heard anyone uh, ask before. Um, how does uh, BitFarm's managed security protect, blah, protect against potential cyber threats and attacks? And then I want to also follow that up with, uh, do you guys change the default password on your miner? How, so how do we defend against cyber attacks on our mining infrastructure? And yeah, like, is, that thing? like is, is that a major concern? Have there, I mean, you probably can't even talk about it for spin events, but you know, um, you got lots Honestly, of money in hardware. <laughs> it's, it's like a, a digital attack is not a major concern for us. Like, I mean, obviously we've got some safeguards in place, but like, I mean, play it out. Like what happens? Like, it's okay. So somebody, 
you know, breaks in, immediately reconfigures our miners across the site, they start mining somewhere else. Like we know about that instantaneously. And we have people on site, we can immediately cut the internet connection and you know, we can immediately turn everything off. Like I mean, what's the worst that can really happen? So we start losing a little bit of revenue while we while we wipe everything and get everything set back to factory stock. Um, I'm not so concerned about that. Like uh, any attack is pretty minimal in terms of impact. Like the greatest cost there is going to be opportunity cost for not mining while you're getting things repaired. But I, I doubt that they could do any significant damage. Um, I mean, worst worst case scenario if you play it out is like somebody hacks in and, and overclocks all your miners and, and draws too much power off your infrastructure. Um, like that's the, probably the worst case scenario, but I don't really see what they get out of that, right? Like, I mean, I, I can tell you the worst that I've seen and I've actually, I've only seen it happen once in North America. Um, I, I won't say what farm it happened to. Uh, it wasn't public, it was a small farm, but this is like the S9, S17 era. Uh, where there was like people were buying, you know, secondhand machines from China. So what people were doing was they were loading basically firmware viruses on, on the machines, ship them to your farm, you configure it, put your password in, and then it would worm. And it would go through every, most, a lot of farms, they don't segregate, like a local miner can't talk to another local miner, and it would worm throughout the farm. Um, and there was two really, really good viruses. There, there was one that we call it, coined the night switcher, which was relatively genius what it did. It uh, basically at like two in the morning, it'd look up where it is. It's about two in the morning. Uh, CG Miner would just stop reporting to any management software that it's working. It was throwing, you know, errors. And in that time period, it was mining to like nice hash or any pool that you can mine to a solo address. And then, you know, a couple hours go by, it switches back and it would just be random downtime. Um, that one wasn't horrible. And then the other one we called, uh, it was called Ant Build. Is that, that's what we named it. Uh, that one was bad. That, that one was essentially, it was a worm. And it corrupted the control board, so you couldn't boot from SD card. Like there was nothing you could do to wipe it. Um, but I've never seen that happen anywhere in North America. It was pretty—I don't want to say it was pretty common, but like in Eastern Europe and like Asia, uh, well, we you saw know, that quite back, a bit. Back in the day, there was no security protections at all on on hardware, right? Like the S9 didn't used to have any security. Like anything before the S9 had zero security on it. So it'd be pretty easy to, you know, flash anything you want on there. Um, and, and send it off, you know? Yeah. Uh, I mean, they didn't even have secure, secure boot, which granted, secure boot is generally used to protect yourselves and manufacturers use it to lock you out. But yeah, I mean, I mean, the BeagleBone, the BeagleBone board has no security either, but at least Bitmain, you know, does signature checking and, and all this other fun stuff. But, but yeah, if you go, if you go back like S9 era or even earlier, it was an open computer essentially. And so, Ben, you mentioned the S9. For some of the new users, you know, that have came into the mining space from, uh, you know, over the last few years, that's going to be something that is, is well before their time. And with your experience in mainland China starting mining so soon, like, how do you look at the future of ASICs and especially, like, how they're designed, the form factors, people adopting for immersion and, and for hydro? Where do, you, where do you see the future of ASICs going, not only from, like, a design perspective, but then how they're sold and marketed and, and things like that from your experience over the past, it sounds like over 10 years of, of mining. Yeah, that's, um, that's an interesting question. You know, I, I keep saying that the miners are not really designed well for the kind of facilities that operate them, right? The, the miners are optimized and their design is optimized around like a commodity-based trading market. Like they're, that's how they're optimized, right? They're not designed to be like, hey, this is an efficient way to build out a data center. You would never ever see AWS with like a, a Bitmain S9 style server being plugged on, you know, racks and like it, it you would just never ever see it. Um, it's it's I think it's all based on trading, right? Like I think Bitmain has a identified a market here, maybe all the manufacturers identified a market here that retail really loves because hey, my miner is the same as the CleanSpark miner, the BitFarms miner, the Marathon miner, whatever. Like I can compete directly with them. It's the same miner. Um, I think they love that. Uh, so that part of the industry, I think, is going to be really difficult to change, um, even though I think it probably should. Obviously, the, you know, the, the trend is towards more and more power density as much as you can possibly get it. Um, 
And I think the the Desaway miner is probably the best designed miner that we've seen out in in years. Um, if you take a look at how they've actually done that work and and put the thought process in, oh hey, we're going to use cheaper cheaper chips. We're going to super underclock them. You can overclock them if you want. Like it's a very very smart design philosophy. I think you're going to see a lot more power density. I think you're going to see miners that are more optimally designed to operate in a range as opposed to at a fixed point, right? Like the fixed point operation days, I think are over. I think you want a miner that operates in a range profitably um, and that you can control that range. And so I think that's where, that's, you know, where the immersion and everything else can possibly, you know, come in and provide a lot of extra value. You know, if you're able to run a miner and overclock at 50, 60% because the power prices have just gone down and you, now you want to monetize that lower power price and you're able to, you know, increase your power consumption there, then the power price goes down and you, th you know what I mean? Throttle back down. That's, that's the future of every miner is, is this kind of programmatic range of operation um, and a huge amount of, of power density. But I still, I think we're going to be revolved around these like a, retail trading cards. Just one thing I, I picked up on is, is you're talking about the form factor. Uh, would you argue that like the BitFury design is a better design for, for a miner? You know, like the six the base dimension. trackable, oh, sliding, sure. modular, upgradable. No one else does that. And it's kind of sad. <laughs> it would, it, it was by far the best design. It was a really, it was a really smart way to do it. Um, and those things were, were tanks. Like, Cutit was running them until I think last year. Like, they, 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 they don't just break. like they just don't break. You know, like they're they were really really well designed air cooled units, and they were incredibly easy to service and maintain. So, um, I love that form factor. I I should think that more people will do that. I you know, when the S nine is really special to me. It was my first Bitmain ASIC that I actually had and, and operated. Um, you know, when I started, it was all S sevens, and the S nines came out shortly after. Um, and you know every single generation of Meyer generally has a huge increase in power consumption. Like S7 to S9 was a huge increase. You started getting to S9 to S15s. It was like a moderate increase. You get to the 19s, we're at 3kW now, or the 17s and the 19s. You know you're at 3kW. Now you're looking at um, the T21s have a high energy mode, so the T21s are designed to do between 3.6 and 5.2. Again, there's that range there that I think is is kind of where things are all going. It's just going to keep getting bigger and bigger. I think we're going to move up to like 480 volt, three phase PSUs, and um, like I don't I don't think any site's going to be operating at 240 in five years. Like that would be that'd be really surprising to me. I, I think that the one issue though um, is, of course, when you design your farm, you design it. Think about all the farms that were designed around S9s. Then there was a push for 17 series and 19 series. The infrastructure updates that some some farmers will have to take to oh keep, for sure uh, it's gonna suck <laughs> for sure it's it's you know and that's the other thing again like I think people with the air cooled farms I think they they don't they're trying to save as much cost as possible you're better off overbuilding a little bit right if you build in a little bit of flexibility into your farm you might be able to save yourself a lot of cost later on. Um, and, and I don't think people understand the benefits of that flexibility to, enough just yet. Yeah, and one thing I wanted to kind of go back to and nerd out for a moment here is, is you bring up Desi Miner and a little bit of how they design things differently. Would you mind digging in the details a little bit about that between the heat pipes on the, the on the, uh, what is it, the uh, heat sinks, like the heat pipe heat seek design, the different chip layout that they did and everything. Would you kind of just highlight some more detail around that just for people listening that might be interested? And how maybe it varies from a bitmain miner to keep it simple. Yeah, like if you take a look at um, a bitmain miner or a micro BT miner, and you look at it without the heat sinks on, like the first thing that you'll notice is the chip placement on the board, and the chip placement on the board is not uniform across the board. Like it is, it's highly concentrated on one end, and then it just gets less dense as you get further across the board. And the reason for that is because right at the, the front end where it's most dense is the closest to the air intake. It has the coolest air. As the air passes over, it's heating up. And so it's had less ability to cool those chips later on. If they were spread at the same density, you'd have an issue. Um, 
you know, the way that Desiree designed their miner, they designed it to be able to handle a wide variety of temperatures. And part of the way that they did that was with the chip design itself. So by utilizing a, um, a chip and planning to underclock it significantly in order to get your desired performance, that means the total output on each one of those chips is already significantly less. Right, and now your cooling requirements to operate at those normal underclock specs are significantly less on a on a chip basis, right? Um, so they're able to do a little bit more flexible cooling with that. They also have better conductivity built into the heat sinks, right? Based on the way that they've designed the the board layout and the heat sink layout, so you should have better thermal conductivity. You have a better um, philosophy, I think, with the chips. And you have a better design layout on, on the actual board itself. So you're able to push those chips um, quite a bit because they've designed the board to be pushed, right? Um, makes a lot of sense to me. Like that's that's how every everything should be should be made. Like most of the, you know, most of the uh, the bitmain miners, like you can push them pretty hard with with Mark's, you know, software. Um, but then they'll start hitting issues with with temps, right? Like that's where the immersion comes in because they didn't design it properly. But that doesn't mean you can't design an air-cooled miner to be pushed, you know, and operate in a wide variety of, of, of energy consumption levels and heat generation. Like there's no reason why you can't do that. You can, Desiree did it. Yeah, when I was actually down at the conference and I, and I met with them, I was uh, pretty uh, blown away because, I mean, I went, of course I nerded out and I was like, okay, what nanometer, what size of the die and going through it. And then I was asking them, you know, how many cores? And they all paused and looked at me like, why is this dude asking us how many hashing cores are in each chip? I'm like, oh, what's the frequency? And they're like, okay, they're telling me. And I'm like, oh, I see what you did. I'm like, you're just putting less, like, from what I recall, I had the less, like less than half the number of hashing cores as like a Bitmain uh, model and over far less than half the normal frequency. Um, and then their, their power supply voltage range is so massive that they can go all over the place. Uh, I think the only downside to doing what they did is like it's, it's a little bit I mean, it's cheap and it's expensive. They're using older gen chips, but they're packing in so many. Um, the the only thing and I, I'm not aware of, and I, I really wish I asked at the time, is as you'll know with most uh, Bitmain micro BT miners, when a single chip uh, say shorts out and burns up, the whole hashboard's dead because it's serialized. Um, something with that design. I'm curious if they added, you know, um, smaller series. So like, let's say you can't remember the chip sequencing on the Desway board, but, but I, I wanted to say there was a couple of different parallel lines running. It wasn't all in one sequence. I think they had four, I'm pulling this off memory, I could be wrong. I think they had four different sequences, like they had four different lines and there was some sort of, there was some sort of pass through. So, you know, if you do have, if you do have chip failure, it just passes through onto the next or some sort of uh, deal. Oh, they had, they, they had essentially like a jumper that would jump it. There was, yeah, there was some sort of input output connector that it, even if the chip died, it would still relay the information onto the next chip, if I remember that correctly. It was, it was pretty well designed. Uh, yeah, I mean, when, when I was looking at it, I, I was, I, I was, you know, first thing I did when they had a mine, I took a piece of paper and I clogged the fans and they're like, oh, okay, run up to 90C. And I was like, all right. Let's do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I think my biggest gripe is is the miners manufacturers don't design the miners for the operators. They design them around retail trading. You know, like if you designed it a product for deployment at scale, it would not look like what we have. Um, just it would look radically different. Um, the Desway miner is the first miner that I've seen in a long time that you know took a step back and was like, hey. If we just like started from scratch, could we design this better? And um, yeah, they they designed a better miner. We'll see how well they do. New manufacturers, that's a really that's a really tough space to be in, um, but it's a really smart design philosophy, I think. What would you want? Let's pretend you were building a miner. What would you want to do that would make it nicer for the operator? Make it a hardware level. It could be software level. Level. Uh... Um, I mean, I, I think definitely. All the miners need better firmware. Like, uh, you know, the way that we track our miners as a portfolio, we want to we want to know all the miners' individual cost information, their individual revenue, their individual profit, their individual cost to maintain. Like, we want to know all of that. A lot of that could be done in the individual miner firmware. And I, I think you know, planning a miner for 
somewhere between like a, a one and a half to four KW range. Like that would give people a lot of, a lot of benefit, you know, way that the chips can be designed differently to have more of an exponential curve or less of an exponential curve in, in, in terms of performance. Um, you know, I, I would like to see, I would like to see a machine that have a lot more greater flexibility. Um, and do you think any of the newer miner providers are, are making major progress on that? So we have Desi Miner, we have Chain Reaction, we have Aerodyne, a lot of new players, you know, coming into the space, some of which have deep Silicon Valley roots and developing some pretty amazing technology. Do you see any of those guys standing out from, from one another in this process? I know you highlighted Desi Miner, but didn't know if you've uh, had the chance to work with Chain Reaction or Aerodyne or some of the other newer players in the market. Yeah, I, th I think the market's pretty ripe for disruption. Um, I believe we're testing all of those miners. I think we're under MNDA on the other two, though. Um, so I can't get into too much, but like, you know, we're, we're, we're looking at all the miners. Um, you know, if there's a new miner model out, we should have at least one of them, you know, just so that we understand what people are producing, what are the changes, like, what should we expect? You know, like we should have at least one of every miner that, that comes out. And so that's, you know, part of that is just Intel and, and knowing, um, I do think, you know, this is a very difficult game to, to be in. Like there's a reason why very few miners have gone the vertical path to building their own miners. Um, it's a very competitive space. Like it's just very competitive. I, I have no desire to be in that space. Um, and best of luck to anybody who wants to, to wants to go at it. I think, you know, Bitmain with an 80 to 90% market share is like probably a, a pretty unsustainable number. And I think you have a lot of people trying to nip at that, at that market share right now. Uh, we'll see what happens. Wasn't there a miner, um, this is going back a couple of years. They were trying to make some altcoin miner and they raised a bunch of money, started doing production. And then I remember the developers claimed that Bitmain affected, you know, messed up their product line and basically told people who were selling parts for them to stop. And they did. And then Bitmain dropped an ASIC that did the same shitcoin algorithm. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? I do not. But, um, you know, it's crypto, man. And it's shitcoins specifically. So anything well, goes. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, my next question um, was, uh, how do you see the relationship between traditional financial systems and cryptocurrencies evolving? And then how do you see BitFarms you know, like fitting in that landscape? And then on top of that, oh, is, is do Virgin Bitcoins matter? Because they kind of all meld together. Virgin Bitcoins don't matter. I think we all know that. Um, there's, there's no like, there's. I've, I've heard that since like 2018 that these Virgin Bitcoins are going to get a premium. I've never seen one of those deals. Um, so I think that's a pretty easy question, nip in the butt. Um, you know, it's 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 a funny thing because it's it's like a chicken and the egg scenario with TradFi and, and Bitcoin specifically. I've I've always had the view that um, you know people like to look at Bitcoin as the most volatile asset because the price moves so so rapidly and so quickly in in a free market. Um, but the truth is, it's the most stable asset on the planet because we know exactly what supply exists at exactly any given point of time historically, and we can predict it with an incredible degree of accuracy any time in the future. And in fact, like the further out you go, the higher confidence you have at predicting the exact number, because you're going to lose out on the randomness and the variability over a greater period of time. Like it's actually, it's actually pretty mind boggling the mathematics around the predictability of, of Bitcoin supply. And so when traditional finance starts realizing like, wait a minute, there's actually a traditional like fixed unit of supply that we can predict out over time that's not it doesn't vary according to anything like i think that's the real value here um you know nobody can tell you how many dollars exist today or how many are being printed nobody can tell you how many barrels of oil exist or how many are being pulled out of the ground or how many are being consumed like nobody can tell you that for any commodity the only commodity on the planet that anybody can say that with for certainty and everybody can say that with certainty and everybody can check everybody else's numbers with certainty, you know, it's Bitcoin. It's the only one. And um, I think that's, I think that's an incredible asset. When people realize that TradFi is going to be all over this pricing things in Bitcoin. And um, I think it's inevitable personally, but certainly not there tomorrow. 
I guess on on that note, do you think there's going to be a day when like, or do you, oh, how am I going to word this? Do you ever think there's going to be a, a point in time where like Bitcoin will be like a dollar or will it still be more like a digital gold? Um, you know, like will I, I be able to I, walk into a car dealership and buy a car with Bitcoin or buy my oh, version with so. Bitcoin in the US? I, th I think that's absolutely going to happen. I think that that already exists, you know, like. There's a lot of places where you can you can do that. Um, it's you're paying in Bitcoin, but it's settled on Mastercard or you know something along those lines. Like that, that exists. I think that will keep getting bigger and better. I think the rails are there. I think even I think Lambo accepted like two weeks ago, or Lambo or Ferrari started accepting Bitcoin. It was Ferrari started accepting Bitcoin for payments. You know, like maybe it's a LARP, but maybe there are a decent amount of, of Bitcoin bros who are like, yeah, get me a Ferrari. I want to pay in Bitcoin. I do not want to pay in cash, right? Um, yeah, I mean, payment rails are a big thing. I, I think that's the, like, if you look at, if you're, if you're into equities and, and you know, Taylor and I are, are public markets, so um, I'm sure we look at those quite a bit, but like Visa and MasterCard are like two of the most amazing stocks of like all time. You know, they've got a monopoly space on payment processing and they just clip a percentage of what the day, you know, what the daily transactions are every single day around the world, like nonstop. Um, that's, that needs to be disrupted and Bitcoin can be really good at disrupting that space. You know, you need, you need other vendors in there like Cash App and other things who are going to provide the rails. But like, that's a that's a marketplace that's it's massive and, and desperately needs disruption. The credit card so that space. Tie, yeah, that ties into my next question, right? And, and it's it's two part. You've been you've been in this space forever, so I feel like you're a good person to, to ask this to. What do you think is the next next big adoption moment? Like, what is the the next moment in time where you know let's let's rule out the ETF because everybody's talking about it. But after the ETF, what's like the next big thing in Bitcoin? Is it accessibility to wallets that are really easy to use? Is it a tie-in with a certain system? What's going to be the next catalyst for that, that next stage in adoption where we'll see more than just one car company accepting Bitcoin, but multiple? I think it's going to be geopolitical. Um, I, I think Bitcoin's primary focus is to kind of address these geopolitical issues and the world is crazy and, and getting increasingly crazier and more chaotic by the day. I think governments are going to have harsher and harsher reactions to capital controls, um, freedom of movement, freedom of, of, of money movement. And I think Bitcoin's going to be there to start absorbing all of this. Um, like, unfortunately, I, th I think the biggest driver for Bitcoin adoption is geopolitical instability. And uh, the areas where we see Bitcoin really thriving and some of the periods where we've seen Bitcoin really thriving are in those areas. Like, I'm not sure if anybody remembers back in 2017, I think it was Greece freezed all the banks and all the ATMs. Uh, Bitcoin went nuts. Like Bitcoin went nuts during that period. Um, and it was because it was like for, for them, it was like their only way, there was their only way out. Like, I'm not sure if anybody, you know, pays attention back to Ethereum back in, in China back in 2017, but in January, 2017, I was in, I was in mainland China and they announced a new rule saying that you can't withdraw cryptocurrency from a Chinese exchange. So as before, what people were doing was they were sending RMB to a Chinese cryptocurrency exchange, they're buying Bitcoin, they're withdrawing it to a foreign exchange, they're selling it there for USD or Euro or whatever that is, and they're getting around the capital controls because you can only send out 50,000 US dollars a year as a Chinese citizen without having any problems. And so they were just using Bitcoin and the government in January said, uh, we're gonna stop this, but they only stopped it for like the top four or five cryptocurrencies since so it was like, it's like Bitcoin, Litecoin, um, it was I don't know, whatever two other crap coins there was. And then Ethereum was the next one on that list. And Ethereum like immediately starts trading up. Like Ethereum was at like 10 bucks and then 11 the next day and like 12, 14. It went all the way up to 430 bucks, like starting the day that China made that announcement. Um, and it's just, it's because it's just, it was a real world utility. Like Chinese were using it to get their money out. And when he absorbed all that from Bitcoin and Ethereum, it drove the price. And everybody in the West was like, oh, dApps. And it was like, no, it's like, this is <laughs> like, this is Chinese policy, um, you know, driving this 40 or, you know, 40 X rally. Um, I, I think, I think it's all geopolitical. It's more instability in the Middle East, higher oil prices, like more sanctions on countries, you know, restricting their ability to, to trade, like, 
the more countries cut the cut each other off, the more people are going to use Bitcoin to reconnect and you know establish new networks. Um, another question I had for you, since you've been in the mining space professionally for six point fifteen, eight or nine years, um, what you know personal professional lessons have you learned from this industry that uh, you think should be shared? <laughs> No, I mean, and I think it's a, it's a really big point to point out. I mean, you've been in this industry a really long time. I like to make the joke that Bitcoin mining is kind of a revolving doors of, of two years. So maybe tie in, like, how, how have you been here for, for 10 years and been so successful, you know, through, throughout this time frame? I, I think that that might not be as much of a compliment as you think, you know, to say, hey, you've been here nine years and you're still here. Um, you know, obviously, I've made some mistakes if I'm still here after nine years instead of <laughs> rotating out after, you didn't know how after three or four. But um, no, I mean, I, I think everybody likes to chase in this in this market. And, and the real way to play is counter cyclically. You know, it's, it's, it's the same as any other market. You don't want to be doing what everybody else is doing. You want to be doing the opposite of what everybody else is doing, I think. Um, and so that's that's a challenging spot, you know, like. I say most people probably get into mining with with for the wrong reasons. Maybe they didn't do the math. They've got lofty expectations that are not realistic, and um, you know they think that hey, I'll just plug in ten computers and they're just going to run forever, and I'm just going to make all this money, and like I don't have to do anything. It's like no, um, that's not how any of this works, you know. And um, my my biggest advice is unless you're like super passionate and nerdy and like want to learn about this stuff, like don't even bother with it um, at all. Like, like if you're somebody who wants to plug in one S19 and you're not very technical and you want to maintain it, like, just like, just like, don't, don't do it. <laughs> it's, uh, it's probably not worth it. If you're somebody who wants to tinker around and like figure out a way to heat their hot tub, like, like by all means, like buy an S19 or, or whatever and figure it out. Um, for most people, this is not the space you want to be in. Like, it's just not the space. Like, I, I don't know how many nights of, of rest that I've given up on because I'm sitting there with my Bitcoin mine and, you know, I've got like 38 machines down and I'm running the math and I'm like, oh shit, if I go to bed tonight, uh, it's going to cost me $750 to sleep. And then, you know, then I was like, well, I'm not sleeping right now until these miners are back up. And, um, you know, most of my, most of my advice would be like, don't, don't do it. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. So advice is, to... don't do it. No, but, but gotta, I, I, I agree really, because you have to really love the space to do it. Like, don't don't get in this as like a just a curiosity. Well, no, I'm I'm just thinking like back 2017, I had like 30 or 40 ASICs, and and I told this story so many times. And like my, my parents' basement, you know, it's snowing outside. The grass is is growing because of all the heat coming out. And it was, you know, I'm here I am in the middle of winter trying to like mitigate heat problems. And, you know, Bitcoin's going to the all time high, you know, an S9 was making a couple hundred bucks a day. It was the first batch, you know, and that was literally my dilemma. So I could, uh, I called out of work the next day. I mean, that's what I did. I just stayed up all night and, you know, I just said I was sick, but like, how are you going to be like, yeah, I was playing with my Bitcoin miners trying to make more money. It doesn't, doesn't computate, but, uh. And, and on that note, like you have to be passionate about it, right? Clearly you're passionate about it. You run one of the largest mines in, in the world. Um, talk talk to us a little bit about like how you got into Bitcoin. I've never heard the Ben intro to Bitcoin story, which I assume means a lot of people have it. Like you lived in mainland China, you've been mining for 10 years. What what was the original like orange pill moment or where did you find out about it? Or what like what dragged you into this horrible industry that you speak so highly of? Yeah. Um, so I was in, I was in college in 2010 and I was using this forum called end of the And it was a place where people could trade games and movies and everything else. And they were using Bitcoin to buy and sell movies and, and games. Um, I had a friend who was mining Bitcoin on his, um, his gaming PC in his frat and he was just selling, selling it for beer money. It was like 73 cents at the time, something like that. And um, he wanted to sell like a hundred bucks to buy Bitcoin, to buy beer. And my friend and I were going to split a hundred bucks worth of Bitcoin at 73 cents. And we're like, you know what? Like, this is, this is super cool. We've seen it on our forum. Like, 
you know, we can get some of this Bitcoin thing. We're like, what can we do with it? Like the only place we've ever seen anybody use it is on this like illegal forum where people are trading games and movies illegally. Um, and I said, maybe we're getting screwed here because this guy is using it to buy beer money and, and we could also use the beer money. And so um, instead of buying $100 worth of Bitcoin at 73 cents, we went out to go buy $100 worth of Pass Blue Ribbon because that was our favorite college beer of choice. And um, we got to the grocery store and they didn't even have pass through ribbon. They only had pass through ribbon light. So we bought a hundred dollars of pass through ribbon light. And then about a year later, I saw the price of Bitcoin was at 1200 bucks. And I said, shit, for that, for those like couple of cases of pass through ribbon light could have had over a million dollars. And ever since then, I've been hooked on the Bitcoin price and watching the charts and the technology. Um, I tried buying miners from Butterfly Labs in 2013. I sent them $5,000. I'm still waiting on my class action lawsuit to pay out. Um, they never sent me my miners. I bought my first uh, Bitcoins in an ATM in 2014, and I paid like a 6% you know, fee, and everybody thought I was crazy, but Bitcoin was like 400 bucks. And then um, I, I started mining in ETH, with Ethereum um, in 2015. So Ethereum came out. My boss at the time, I worked for a really small web development company in Hong Kong. Uh, my boss went to DevCon in London, came back like three days later and was like, guys, I quit. Like, this is your company. What do you mean you quit? You're, it's like six person web development company and you're the CEO and lead you know, software engineer. Um, he got a job at the first ICO on Ethereum, a, a company called Digix. And um, they were doing like a, a gold backed stable coin out of Singapore, tokenized gold with the bank of or the gold vault of Singapore. So you, you go there, you give them your token, you get a gram of gold. So he got a he got a great deal on that. And I looked at it, I said, this is Bitcoin 2.0. I'm not going to do my passport ribbon light moment all over again. Um, I went out, I you know, threw a um, Ethereum miner on my my gaming PC. I just ran it for a couple of days, saw that it was working, came up with a plan. I bought every GPU I could in Hong Kong. Um, packed them into suitcases, moved out to Taiwan, built a, um, a GPU mine in my girlfriend's mom's house in Taiwan, and I ran it there. Um, had some issues because they thought we were growing weed because we were consuming too much power for a resident. So we, we were getting like weekly police checks. Uh, just make sure we're still not growing weed. No, it's still, it's still the same computers as last week. Um, then I, I moved that into mainland China. So you know, I, I saw Ethereum. I said I wasn't going to miss the boat a second time. And you know, I started out as an F Maxi, and the uh, then there was the Ether Ether Classic fork, and I was on the Ether Classic side. I thought, you know, we would win. We lost. We lost really hard. It was a really bad decision. I lost a lot of money on that on that call, and um, I realized like how important Bitcoin was. You know, because they don't play these kind of games, and nobody. There's no like demigod in charge. I realized how valuable not having a demigod uh, in charge of your cryptocurrency was. And I slowly started becoming a maximalist. Um, I guess, and then the, the last question, where do you see the future of BitFarms? I mean, you're, you're building out these sites. Uh, is there anything that you could talk about that you guys are planning for the future? Um, you know, I, I think the way that we look at the company is a little bit different. You know, when, when you look at, when you look at how Bitcoin miners came out as public companies, like it was kind of a, a workaround for the lack of a spot ETF and the lack of ability to get a spot ETF. So when miners first came out in 2017 and 2018, we were we were a loophole to get Bitcoin on you know a public vehicle. Um, hey, you're like less risky. You don't have customers. You're not dealing with deposits. You're just processing this. You're receiving it. You're selling it. Like we were a workaround. And I think, you know, as we look towards the future, what we really need to be cognizant of is like that we are, we are a company that, you know, is designed to provide exposure to Bitcoin to our shareholders. And, you know, there's lots of different ways that we can provide that exposure. Um, the question is, is like, how can we provide better quality exposure to our investors, you know, that give them more upside for less risk or more upside for less cost? Um, I think we're taking a look at that question very deeply. Like, how do we provide better quality exposure for our investors over and over and over again? And so when you look at like a future bit farms, you know, what will it look like? I mean, I think it's going to be more diversified. I think it's going to have a very strong portfolio management, you know, uh, framework. 
for how we manage all of our sites. I think there's, you know, there's room for a lot of different areas of this mining business, I think, in a, in a good portfolio. And I think we'd like to provide exposure to a greater variety of, of, of the mining ecosystem um, as opposed to just, you know, staying purely focused as a, as a one-trick pony and, and just buying new miners and plugging them in all the time. So you talked a little bit about diversification being a little bit different. I'm going to ask the, the age-old question right now. Does, does AI, does HPC fit into BitFarm's future business models? Or are you guys strictly looking at uh, focusing on, on the Bitcoin side of the technology world? You know, I think it I think it takes advantage or utilizes a lot of our core competencies as a as a good developer and operator of high quality megawatts and in infrastructure. Um, there's certainly something that we could do there. It certainly is a very different space that you know we would have to learn a lot from. And I think when you look at just kind of the capex of it, uh, it it doesn't actually um, necessarily make a ton of sense given how much money you have to spend to to deploy a megawatt of, of HBC or AI, like sure the revenues are huge, but the levels of capital expenditure relative to the size of most mining companies to, to deploy that equipment is it's like, it's phenomenally unbalanced. Um, you know, if you're a 200 megawatt mining company and you want to deploy, let's say 20 megawatts worth of HPC, like, and you're trying to do it with the latest gen stuff, like you do not, there's no way you have the money for that. Like there's just, the relative scale of 200 megawatts worth of mining versus 20 megawatts of HBC in terms of the capital costs. And it's just, it's radically different. Um, so well, what go in detail there. Why don't you give the, the listeners like a little bit of uh, what, what's one megawatt of HBC? Just, just ballpark it for them so they can understand maybe a little bit of the difference between buying a one megawatt of uh, S21s versus buying one megawatt of uh, an H100 GPU type clustered setup. It really, it really depends on, you know, what you're deploying, but I think on the high end, you could easily spend 30 to $40 million for a megawatt of, of, you know, H100 high end GPUs. Like if you want the best compute, I think 30 to 40 megawatts is probably what you're spending 30, $40 million a megawatt, you know, and if you look at what would it cost us to deploy a megawatt of mining, you know, it, 30 to 40 times less than that, you know, like it's, it's much closer to a million than it is to 30 or 40. You know, obviously a lot of different technology that you can use to deploy that megawatt of, of, of mining and different models and everything else. But like, it's nowhere close to 40 million, even with the best possible gear you can imagine in mining, you're not getting close to 20 million megawatt. You're not getting close to $10 million a megawatt. No, yeah, I couldn't agree more. The the costs are, are wildly different. And if you look at a at like a tier three, tier four data center compared to a typical Bitcoin mine, while they are oh, the totally same different. theory, they're completely different, right? Yeah. They're two different worlds of thought from design and practice and everything like that. Um, so yeah, no, it's it's interesting to hear how the AI and HPC space is converging with the uh, typical mining space, but it is also awesome to learn from each other, right? I think that the data center operators can learn a lot from the miners. I think the miners can learn a lot from the data center operators. So that could be an interesting trade of information over the next few years. I think I think we'll definitely do it cheaper. I think that's for sure. Like. You know, a miner is going to figure out a way to deliver that compute for less money. Um, that's that's what we're really good at as miners. Is oh, well, I mean, if you if you're a good miner, you should be really good at controlling costs because um, it's the only thing that we can control, right? We can't control our revenue, so if we're not in control of our costs, like we're not in control of anything at all. <laughs> um, so no, I, I think I think we could find a way to do it cheaper. I'm I'm still really interested what's gonna happen in this space. You know, it's really it's really new and I think there's a lot of risk in spending forty thousand dollars for a GPU, you know, just like there's a lot of risk in spending a lot of money for an ASIC. Um, you know, especially for a brand new one, like I, I think there can be a lot of risk depending on when you buy them in the cycle, right? And the AI thing is so new, we have no idea what a cycle is, you know, like we're at like this, this thing could go on huge. This thing could stop tomorrow. Like there is no cycle that can be identified. And so it's, it's a very speculative bet on the value of that compute, which I honestly think HPC is more risky than, than Bitcoin mining right now. Yeah, definitely uh, wonder how long it's going to last. So the cycle concept is something that is uh, particularly interesting in my mind. So one thing I was just thinking of though, that was kind of funny. I'm just imagining if a Bitcoin miner did cooling for like a server cluster, 
I'm just picturing a bunch of server racks and it's a big swap cooler in front of it with the screen. That'll do. Hey, it might. It might, Mark. It I just mean, might do. I mean, it might just do. Seven nines of reliability right there. Just a swap cooler in front of some NVIDIA DGXs. Apparently, that's the secret answer that uh, Equinox <laughs> and the other companies have figured out. Yeah, you just sell it every, every year. Why doesn't AWS use, use like, right? cardboard wet walls? Like, why, don't, why doesn't AWS do that? Yeah, they should. They just sell them every year. I'm used. Well, Ben, we really appreciate you coming on. Uh, great way to start the first episode of this takeover to have somebody like yourself on. So uh, best of luck to, to you and, and BitFarms, and uh, we'll see you on the flip side. Thanks, guys. Great to be here. See ya.